0: Welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have the founder of The Pleasure Project, Anne, join us for a conversation all about the liberation of pleasure. Together we talk about the Declaration on Sexual Pleasure, the Seven Pleasure Principles, and changing the paradigm of sex education. Y'all, it was such a delight to be connected to Anne and learn about all the incredible and powerful work that she and the whole Pleasure Project is doing on a global scale Like Anne said, there is a silence that has been imposed upon us and especially if you have a minority identity or multiple in the intersection of that, it is so difficult to take up space for the pleasure that we all deserve. And it's conversations like this, conversations like last week with Cooper that are changing the paradigm. And you, dear listener, if you're having conversations with your friends about your pleasure, if you're texting your friends links to this podcast and these conversations, you are a part of the movement that is making change, making ripples to create a new paradigm. And, you know, Anne was talking about the joy of building community with other pleasure propagandists in this space who are doing that work. And speaking of community, I wanted to give a huge shout out to two new Patreons that joined the Modern Anarchy community. Kelly and Jay. It is a pleasure to have both of you and to connect deeper and share some of the the behind-the-scenes content and private pieces of my life. I posted a couple of pictures of Fat Cat in editing this episode and I'd like to do more of that. I want to share with you the books I'm reading, the things I'm finding in my research, fun pictures of Fat Cat. There is a lot on there that I intend to share with you, you know, I just went to a play party. Can we talk about that in a safe space? I think that Patreon is going to be the space where I'm start to share more of these pieces. And also, it is the support on Patreon that makes this podcast and the educational content that I'm releasing each week sustainable. I understand why so many podcasts are going behind paywalls and subscriptions because it takes a lot of work to make a podcast, y'all. This is a lot of time, a lot of love that is invested, but I don't want to be the person to put this content behind paywalls and subscriptions. I think when we're talking about liberation and we're talking about a new pleasure paradigm, keeping these conversations trapped behind people who have the financial means is just not going to get us there. We have to keep this content free. And If you want to be a part of that movement and support this educational content, then feel free to check out the Patreon link below. You'll join all the fellow anarchist and the community that we've created there to have uh, private conversations in a safe space. So I really hope all of you enjoy the conversation that I had with Anne today, and I want to invite all of you to slow down and try and do at least one thing that is pleasure-based for yourself, whether that's having a cup of tea and enjoying that, or masturbating, having sex with a partner, or maybe enjoying a lovely bath, whatever it is, just taking the time to honor that and your pleasure today.
1: Great Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well,
0: Do you have any questions before we start for me, the podcast?
1: I mean, obviously, I've listened to a few. Not really. I mean, what what do you want to get out of it in terms of the podcast?
0: I mean, I like to take a little bit of a seat back. So if there's something (laughs) specifically you want to talk about.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about pleasure-based sexual health, the pleasure principles, our research with WHO. I can, you know, it's, I listened to Alan McKees just now in the garden. That was nice when I was doing my weeding because I was on his advisory group, right? Some of his research. And he, you know, he was great in terms of also making the academic stuff very accessible. So that would be I guess for us, that would be really great.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'd love to do that. And I'd also love to hear a little bit about your own personal experience with any of this, if that ties into some of this. I feel like it always kind of does for all of us. You know
1: what I mean? Yeah. I'll de- I'm yeah. definitely happy to talk about working in public health and HIV prevention and, you know, when it all, when the straw broke the camel's back and I decided to go into pleasure and why and that stuff. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I would love to hear that story. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm. Maybe do' want to start there, Like, yeah, what was the
1: straw that broke the camel's back for you? <laughs> so, um, I guess pleasure had been bubbling in my mind for a long time. i uh, my first public health job that I did was running a young woman's sexual health project. and i was I was the youth that was selected to run it, like the, you know, the representative of the community. It was on a an estate that had, relatively high unintended teenage pregnancy so that was the kind of public health aim Mm. but I was always really interested in the conversations when you ask young people and maybe it's because I was a young person at the time but why did you have safer sex what were the conditions that helped you have safer sex how was that for you and I think that really opened up young people's um, you know their truths because rather than being on the defensive and being asked, why didn't you have safer Mm. sex? It's always this kind of cup half empty approach from public health. And then for example, um, you know, young men would say, there's so much, you know, basically my, I'm paraphrasing, but they would say, "Um, I've got so many other things to worry about my performance, you know, like um, I don't have a locked room. um, I have to go and buy the condoms. Mm. um, You know, I want to, but, I'm worried about my erection. I'm like, I'm going to be teased, yeah. you know, all of that. And young women would say things, I mean, this is not, you know, exclusively gendered, but it right, um, right, right. would be more common that they would say, well, what did one young woman say to me? Oh, the, um, you know, it's like in the films when the music starts and the violins start playing and then you're kind of on the beach and then you don't want to ask for it. Or, you know, they would say that's when they didn't do it. But when they when they did do it was when they could reconcile that romanticism with mm. being able to have that conversation about care, for example. And so, you know, young people would say, oh, when I, when I feel safe, when I have a, a private space, when condoms are easily accessible, that's when I can have safer sex. So I suppose that positivity and that flipping the narrative to asking people when they did led me to be thinking, why don't we ask more often about... What do you want? So, what we all get taught in sex education is to say no to what you don't want. And I always say, like, how can you know what you don't want if you don't know what you want? So that was kind of in my mind, right? And then I was, um, and then I, you know, was very excited to work in public health. I love public health, um, and it was something that I didn't know was open to me. Um, mm. And then I was working in HIV. So I'd worked in South Africa at the beginning of the cool. AIDS pandemic and became really passionate about wow, the importance yeah. of prevention as it went as the cases went from less than one percent and we thought this is like this is horrendous like this is not possible up to the sort of 25 percent of the adult population mm. that it did um, and the tragedy and catastrophe of that was unthinkable so I was thinking more and more about the constructive ways to support people to have safer sex and then I was working um, promoting the internal condom so I was working for the organization that had kind of supported the first version of that. Um, I was working with public sector in Asia based and I was based in Sri Lanka and I you know was running in lots of different countries um, workshops to introduce the internal or the vaginal condom or you can use it for anal sex Mm -hmm. um, to different groups and I loved working with sex workers who had the the most experience of negotiating safer sex and the incredibly valuable experience and expertise and lived experience of how to do that and I remember sitting mm-hmm. with a group in Sri Lanka and we were having fun talking about how we could make it more erotic and sexy it up and you know then we were like well you know the inner ring can rub on the end of the penis and on the in, you know on the end of the cervix and be like that little internal tickle and it's mm-hmm. extra lubricated and we got we were really going for it you know well we'll let yes. the client insert it oh i'll let him i'll tell him he's a special one and it's kind of lots of you know um and it's you know and i was saying well maybe you could say it's only big because he's big or it makes noise when the sex is really good mm. and so all of these kind of creative techniques were bouncing around And then they took away internal condoms overnight and then came back the next day with lots of these little handwritten notes from their clients that were saying things like smooth and hot. I loved it. And some of them charged more for having sex with uh, with the internal condom. And I was like, we're really onto something now. I love this. And, you know, so that kind of seeing the potential of promoting um, a condom as a sex toy. In the way that you talk about it, in the way that you negotiate it, in the way that you introduce it, rather than saying, you know, the way that we're all usually introduced to them is the condom moment, right, now we've got to stop, and, you know, use this yeah. and we or us, we're naughty people and you must use a condom, like this kind of fig- finger wagging approach. Yeah. Um, And so, and it you know, it helped that it was a new product, so people didn't have preconceived ideas. So you could say, oh, I've just been told about this from a friend and they love it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went to the um, Barcelona AIDS conference, so these big global gatherings, like, you know, 20,000 people who have activists, policymakers, researchers, and this was all a bit new to me. And um, I landed there and I was thinking, God, if if a Martian landed at this AIDS conference, they would think that AIDS is an airborne disease. Like nobody's talking about sex. Mm. Um, You know, they're talking about maybe, you know, incidents or technologies or, um, you know, lots of wonderful things, but the reality of why people become infected and why they have sex and why they want sex and pleasure was just Mm -hmm. never mentioned Mm. and I thought I'm going I feel a bit odd here like like I really missed something and then I went to um one particular session which was about vaginal microbicides which is this potential gel that Uh. could prevent HIV and I thought there could be a potential here because lube right lube the unsung hero of sex I think or heroin yes
0: more lube people more lube
1: (laughs) So I went along and then this you know, researcher was talking, a very formal researcher was talking about how they did the research about vaginal microbicides. And then he was saying, talking about the insertive probe and the receptive cavity. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm not keeping up. I don't really know what's going on. It's a really technical session. And then I realized he was talking about like the penis and the vagina. And I was thinking, just use the words, use the words. And so that was it then. I think something snapped inside me yes. and, um, you know, my rant pipes got even hotter. Ooh. And then <laughs> I yes. went out for a drink with a friend who also works in HIV prevention and condom promotion. I was like, that's it. I'm doing it. It's going to be called The Pleasure Project. And that was the beginning of the journey in um, 2004.
0: Mm wow i mean yeah i think you're talking about the importance of the narrative that we're telling ourselves around these things around sexuality and the reality is these narratives are powerful
1: right oh yeah incredibly powerful and i think i guess another thing that frustrates me is that when it comes to sexuality sex our sexual identity you know, everything that we know about good education f- flies out of the window. So, the vast majority of us have had a sex education that has been shaming and has been not allowing us to explore or discuss even exploring. Yeah. And it's been um, just don't do it. And that's particularly strong for um, there's a kind of high, you know, pleasure hierarchy or the, the Gail Rubin hierarchy that is even more, I think, applied when it comes to pleasure, like a pleasure pleasure privilege is mm-hmm. there right it's real in that um you know it's acceptable pleasure if it's heterosexual married couples or yep. it's acceptable pleasure if it's heterosexual white men or and it's not you know the further away you get from societal norms the less acceptable it, it is if you're queer or if you're not able bodied or if you're a person of color and you can see that very clearly that 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 becomes even harder then to unlearn that shame and stigma, which is um, you then really internalize because you've been told just don't do it. Um, and one of the questions I'm kind of fond of mm-hmm. asking people to think about or discuss is, you know, what was the most pleasurable sex you ever had, and then think about how that's not a muscle that we really ever use. Whereas, you know, as I was saying, when it comes to education when we're taught about learning to drive or learning to cook or whatever learning to garden Mm -hmm. you know we'll be told this thing could give you great pleasure and joy it's you know you need to be whatever independent or you need to be mature enough to handle the skill like it comes to driving but you know we're going to try and keep you safe when you learn this and Mm -hmm. you need to be responsible but it could be wonderful you know and that's exactly the same way that we should be teaching about sexual activity and sexual behavior whereas we're kind of all fumbling around trying to figure out what we enjoy or maybe looking at resources that aren't you know the right resources for us Mm -hmm. or online Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. and so for me that kind of internalized narrative that we takes a long time for most of us to shake off or unpack is very very strong when it comes to sexuality
0: absolutely I mean I think we are not having conversations about it right and I think this is part of it gets kind of tricky when you think about like public versus private conversations right I feel like even at least in my experience and there's space to hold for this but like when I would be in a monogamous relationship it'd be like oh I can't really talk about the sex that I'm having because it's a private act that I'm doing with this other person. But then in that, I'm not having conversations with my friends, with my community about what I like, what I don't like, and expanding in the conversations about that. So I think it gets to be a hard line of like, keeping it private, but also allowing yourself if you want to keep it private, right? Like I'm in a very different space now where I freely talk about this and I like being able to bounce off of all of my experiences with my friends and learn from the different ways that we're engaging in sex in our community. And that's really powerful, right? But like navigating that, the, the privatization of our sexual experiences and honoring that, but also allowing ourselves to have conversations about what feels good with other people in your life. Because like you said, if you're not talking about that, not learning from other people, you're using maybe non-ethical porn. I mean, you're going to get some messaging that I would say is not helpful in that way.
1: Yeah, and so, I mean, one thing we did at the Pleasure Project, which was really fun, is we did a whole project around um, your fantasy
0: And we've done another whole
1: project about what was the most pleasurable sex you ever had. And it can be anonymous. Yeah. And we collected them on a, on a postcard. Mm -hmm. And one, one event in Delhi, I sat on a sofa, we called it sofa sex event. And then people told me if they wanted to, what was their fantasy? And um, Uh, did another project at one of the, um, a big global feminist conference. And we, mm had what you know what was the most pleasurable sex you ever had just write it on the back of the postcard pop it in the box it was so popular mm-hmm. and I think and then read them out but because they were anonymous you didn't you know it was private but yes. it could go public yes. people felt safe and it's for me I used to think about it as a kind of community fantasy or pleasure bank right where you could kind me. of dip yeah. into it and like learn from other people and I think yes. that helps create new narratives which are community driven and on means that people don't have to then rely on, you know, the really un unhelpful porn that's out there. I mean, there's some really great porn as well, ethical feminist porn and safer porn, but mm-hmm. yeah, it just kind of creates these new narratives. I mean, of course, there's wonderful literature and erotica and poetry. And right. that's one thing I really like thinking about with the Pleasure Project is moving away from the kind of public health literature to help people feel inspired by... The nuances and complexities of pleasure and desire that, you know, come through a poem much better than they do Oof. from, you know, well, very much better than they do coming through an health education leaflet. But we have a lot to learn from, you know, the wonderful creativity um, that is out there. And there is, you know, some really great stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you're looking at a research article. I don't feel the pleasure in the research article, you know what I mean? In the same way that I might with a poem, I can't really connect to pure knowledge versus maybe an artistic story, a human experience, someone telling it on a card, right? And that natural humanist that's there rather than the academic lens, kind of like you were talking about at that conference, right? Of like the insertion versus like just using the words for what they are, you know? And I think
1: there's a, you know, there needs to be a better medium than we have Mm -hmm. and um, I think part of the stigmatization of pleasure in the world of sexual health practitioners or policy or public health is that people find it hard to navigate you know you don't have to talk about your own sex life in explicit terms to be a promoter of pleasure right or a pleasure champion right you might find it helpful but you might not we all need to work out our own boundaries on that in different moments but it's like almost people feel that they're not um, a professional if they talk about pleasure and you know when I had the first satellite at the it was the AIDS conference after that I then went all gung-ho and did a pleasure satellite in which um, somebody from the international community of positive women HIV positive women read a poem read a number of erotic poems so we we mixed it up it was great but people, somebody caught me in the corridor and said this is the end of your career what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> so wow. I, I think um, enabling people in their professional spaces to feel more confident and comfortable to be able to talk about sex you know using words that people understand in an honest way but that doesn't make them feel that they're compromising their own privacy is absolutely the way it needs to be and that can be done and you know is done by many but the whole community needs to do that because if you're in the world of being a sexual health professional you need to be able to talk about sex I mean it sounds a bit obvious to say but like it doesn't happen it doesn't happen often enough Mm
0: -hmm. and so
1: what I think we're doing at the pleasure project is also bridging between these worlds of Mm -hmm. academia of um a community of practice but also of the world of explicit media but we're also creating a new narrative which is not the usual narrative of sexual health and sex education which as I say I call it death danger and disease right Oof, all about yes you know what you need to avoid yes. and the negative consequences but it's not the hyper sexualized negativity that we can get with a lot of explicit media or porn mm-hmm. but it, we can walk a new path which is pleasure-based sexual health which is about integrating and incorporating pleasure within sex education and sexual health interventions and we just need some kind of support to understand how we do that and Mm -hmm. and how we do that safely with the people that we're working with right Mm
0: -hmm. absolutely I mean everything you're saying is hitting me that If you have letters behind your name the trickiness of being able to talk about sex let alone your own experience if you'd like to if that feels empowering right i think when we talk about empowerment it's all about the opportunity to choose right not feeling like you have to and not feeling like you can't but that choice the autonomy in it that if you would like to share about your own experience and still be a professional there should be space for that and i think part of that is normalizing the conversation around sex and also I'm thinking about how I just did a presentation about, because um, I my work is in psychology, right? About how we work with survivors of sexual violence, right? And the whole trajectory with that is, you know, processing the narrative, processing the experience and what the meaning is that we take from that. But the end point is moving people towards pleasure. That is the end point of healing after an experience like that. And if we're in the psychology field not talking about what pleasure is, how do we expect our clients to get there? We're not really helping people to get there if we're not having conversations about what pleasure is. All we're talking about is the trauma, the scary things about sex, and we're leaving out this whole piece that is really, really needed for healing.
1: Absolutely, and I think you know it's it's also denying people who have had those experiences the opportunity to work towards this vision of well-being and pleasure and joy and reclaim that and there's some really interesting work on this about how pleasure-based sexual health um, can be more effective for people who have suffered sexual trauma which is a high proportion of people on the planet and um actually um One of the papers that supported our work at the World Association of Sexual Health Mm -hmm. was about just that by Dennis Mm -hmm. Fortenberry. So the World Association of Sexual Health had a I was in their sexual pleasure task force, which was a joy to be in Mm -hmm. um, with lots of really big brains um, thinking about pleasure. And we pushed through a, a sexual pleasure declaration and that was ratified last September. And that, as far as I know, is the first global normative agency to put out a declaration to say sexual pleasure is important. And it's yes. important for all of these kinds of reasons. It's important for people who have suffered trauma. It's important to think about gender dynamics and you know, breaking down the harmful norms around mm-hmm. masculinity and femininity. It's really important for sexual health it's important for practitioners to think about it it's also sex if it's safe sex can be good for you it can be good for your health so there's a paper about how it can be good for your health and there's like remarkably little written or said about that you know it can reduce heart disease it can improve your mental health you know So and so there's a number of papers that are written to support that declaration and um, a technical document that brings it all together with some really fascinating stuff in it. So it brings it all together in a way that you can, it's it's an academic paper, but you can kind of pull from it and, you know, become a pleasure geek as you're reading it. Yes.
0: I would love, I would love if you could send that to me because I can link it into the show notes for people to
1: find. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Both the declaration and the papers. Um, and they're all on our website, actually. So I can send you our website Great. where there's a lot of other pleasure resources. We're trying, our website is like a portal to pleasure Ooh. where you can go in and find all the academic research. We've also got a global mapping of pleasure that mm-hmm. has a world map with all other pleasure positive people who are doing pleasure and sexual health work and you can see a short description of their work. So you can find people in your neighborhood and not feel so alone so we've that's grown from 15 examples in 2005 to over 100 now so and we'd love people to add their examples we want to really have you know we're a we're a small but growing community of people who have this passion for pleasure Mm -hmm. and I think it's really important that we connect because it can feel isolating it can feel scary and you know I've heard time and time again from people who have connected in Mm. that it's been such a relief it's been such a relief to be able to talk to other pleasure positive people
0: huge right because there's this Mm. part of like Wow, there's such a profound level of healing I want to talk about that I cannot talk about with other people because of the taboo. I think this is coming up for me in this exact moment. I try to be as open as I can in my own experience right? writing that line um, because I am a sexual assault survivor. And that is 100% what set me on this trajectory of becoming a psychologist without a doubt, right? So more recently in my life, I've been exploring kink practices and learning to trust another person to explore all of that. Oh my God, what level of healing I have felt in my experience of just surrender and trust and to be in that state with another human is profoundly healing, but I don't know who mm. I can talk to about with this, right? Because mm. it's it's talking about healing that is also about sex, you know, and the second that I say mm. it's about sex, it creates this sort of like, ooh, ooh, you know what yeah. I mean?
1: Well, the taboo around kink, right? But, you know, I think that the vanilla sexual health world has a huge amount to learn from BDSM. And it's great that you've had that experience. Congratulations. Thank you.
0: I literally... (laughs) I literally called it an exorcism. It felt like to me of releasing so much sexual trauma and so much, Mm. at least for me, purity culture. You know, I was raised very Christian. And so to like really release all of that and step into a new state and feel that energy be moved throughout my body was so healing. I mean, you have an experience like that. And I'm like, wow, I, you know, like you said, your horns are going like, I need to talk about this. This is huge.
1: Mm. I'm glad you found people to... Create that space for you as well. It's a, lot. Create, it's yeah, a lot, yeah. Create that safe space. Yeah, yeah,
0: a lot of trust. But, but I think,
1: I mean, you know, there's also some malpractice in the kink community, of Absolutely. course. But I think that there's a lot to learn in terms of creating safe spaces, in terms of how safer sex negotiation can be sexy yeah which then the vanilla world could learn from in terms of like that stuff I was talking about eroticizing condom use and so mm-hmm. on but in terms of discussing the norms working out using the words to say what you want and then you know using the words again to say if that's changed that kind of overcomes what i was talking about at the beginning with that kind of norm of on oh, then the music starts yes. and then it goes quiet and then i don't use the words right so actually i interviewed the um author of the ethical slut oh, which is very oh, exciting yeah years years dotty eastern yes and that was something that we spoke about on on when we spoke about it about the the learning from the the um kink community yes but I think it's a it could be a really big learning for the public health world and it's a bit like what I was saying about sex workers mm-hmm. experience that the problem is that again there's this hierarchy of evidence where that experience or the the skills in negotiating mm-hmm. sexy safer sex would be not respected if it comes from a sex worker very very sadly who could have had like 5,000 percent more experience than yes. the public health researcher yes um and then so it's been kind of maybe put in the wrong hands or you know the role of promoting condoms has been given to people who have been trained to focus on disease treatment or or you know are more comfortable talking about stopping behavior mm-hmm. so to actually focus on the um the sex positive the what to aim for rather than not what not to aim for is what we're all what we're all about and I think there's been a lot more I was you know hoping during Covid and I think it did happen Mm -hmm. that people centred themselves for a while and started thinking more about what they want in their lives what they want to aim for what brings them well-being Mm -hmm. um, and had a moment to reflect and I hope that lasts and you know for me the pleasure projects work fits very much into that space of us all thinking about this paradigm shift in terms of what we want in our lives and what we want our societies to aim for yes um in terms of well-being and I think you know rather than this kind of chasing growth actually you know for what thinking about for what and I think it's a Mm. really equally important moment to think about this in terms of the you know planet well-being right and for me, that's, you know, that that question of what we're aiming for in um, the world of public health research or sex education isn't enough focused on. So when I've seen so many interventions that, you know, are HIV prevention mm-hmm. or so-called women's empowerment yeah. that are all about teaching people how to stop something. And I'm like, well, can we just aim a bit higher, you know, and the standard indicators and in the SDGs for gender equity are focused on measuring know important things but things like you know women um, and female identifying people not experiencing violence or um, being able to open their own bank account and you know these are important things but I'm kind of like we just lift our heads slightly higher and think also you know could we have a you know a longer term vision for more pleasure more joy Mm -hmm. more well-being you know and I'd die a happy woman when the World Bank or the SDGs have an indicator which is measuring pleasure as the ultimate empowerment indicator wouldn't that be fabulous being able to ask for what you want you know
0: yes please let it be so right. Cause I mean, we know the orgasm gap, right. And the data on that, but even that it's like that the orgasm is not the only way to have pleasure. Right. So like, even that's aiming at a very, like, this is where you need to get to have this experience. So it'd be very interesting if we had data that could gauge pleasure, wholly not so focused on the orgasm. But what we do know from the orgasm gap is already that like, there is a significant gap here, and. Oh, yeah. When I think about it, we are I mean, I mentioned sexual trauma, right? But when we expand that out a little bit larger, like the collective trauma that we have all experienced, kind of like you were talking about earlier with the hierarchy of like, what is okay sex, right? And when you work that down to the other areas, yeah, if you're a trans person of color, like being sexual comes with a slew of societal judgment and all these other things. So it can be even harder. Or if you are a woman, you know, at least in America, marital rape wasn't rape and illegal for a long time that was very Mm. recent right and so when we think about all of the narratives in that of women being property and that you know your husband at the time could have sex with you and it not be rape if it was non-consensual all Mm. of that is so much trauma in our collective experience that when you're asking about what is pleasure all these pieces are deep in our psyche and it takes some time to heal through all of that. So even if we haven't had a sexual assault or a violence like that, there is this collective narrative that I would say of the patriarchy that is absolutely trauma that we've all experienced in terms of our sexuality.
1: And I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it gets deeper and deeper depending on where you are geographically, right? Yeah. And on what what legal protection you have. But I think, you know, and then also talk about your you know sexual identity being illegal yeah but I think that pleasure can be a way of also helping us process that and flipping the narrative towards being positive and having some ownership over that and Mm -hmm. even asking yourself that question which you may never have asked yourself like what's my most pleasurable sexual experience or what will be my most pleasurable sexual experience you know is so powerful and kind of changes the conversation yes and you know that's why that's why we do what we do at the pleasure project it's to make sure that the the world that is responsible or gets funding for sexual health globally which is billions of dollars Mm. every year is also ensuring that they are seeing this as an important part of their work because this is what makes sexual health programs more effective and by by missing this actually you know there's been needless deaths because condom programs haven't Mm. worked as well as they should have done right and the Mm. right conversations haven't happened and you know there's been more trauma from people not being able to say this is what I want and this is what I don't want and so that's why I've been on this this trail but it's been really exciting over the last three years because from us being this activist group Mm -hmm. running around conferences sticking up posters in the loo's and you know doing it all completely with no funding I used to call us the guerrilla girls of HIV prevention we were kind of you know fly posting we now are seeing a real I call it the pleasure wave a kind of paradigm the beginning Uh, of a paradigm shift uh, I hope I'm hoping that in about uh, 10 maybe 20 years people will look back and go I can't believe they didn't teach pleasure as well as sexual health in schools but um, since we've had the um, you know we had the WASP pleasure declaration which is amazing Mm -hmm. Um, and as a result of that we also designed these pleasure principles which is taking that evidence and that evidence paper and turning it into seven principles which make it for the practitioner for people for communities to be able to have something that can break that down in a way that they know how to implement it because people often say to me well I get it all but how do I do it mm. so this is seven principles which is about how you actually do it in practice starting with you know the core one is be positive about being sex positive the next one is rights first you know mm. and absolutely rights uh critical to the piece sexual rights but focused on pleasure inclusive sexual health Mm -hmm. and then other ones are embrace learning it's really important for us to share the knowledge that we have in this small and growing community Mm -hmm. um think universal i mean pleasure is something that we can all universally feel if we if we want to but then also to think within people's contexts as well like you know you need to also promote pleasure-based sexual health in a way that is thinking about the context not necessarily yielding to specific gatekeepers who might be trying to gatekeep other people's Mm -hmm. sexuality but then also that you know the one that I my favorite and I shouldn't have a favorite is love yourself and that's um, about thinking about the journey you're making as a sex educator recognizing that and what you're bringing to the table in terms of the work that you're Mm -hmm. doing and doing that work in terms of the conversations you're having and also sharing that kindness and love through the community of practice that is that is the kind of you know pleasure family and then also thinking about what we're doing to the planet as well Mm. we put in Annie Sprinkle's eco-sexual manifesto there you know how you can think about pleasure in a much in a much wider way so that's our tools and and we have them all on our website it's all open access it's You can go in and look at people who are doing this work, suggestions for starting a conversation, links to the the evidence. And so it's kind of this trajectory of this declaration, the evidence and the pleasure principles. And then in a very super exciting way, we published a big review of research for the last 15 years with the World Health Organization, which came out on Valentine's Day this year. That took a lot of work. Um, it's about three, three years, but we, you know, wanted for the first time to do a very gold standard review mm. of the research. Yeah. And so a systematic review is a way of doing that. And it looks in a very, as it says, systematic way across all the research and people know about systematic reviews. And then we asked the question, you know, does, can do considerations of pleasure and sexual health improve sexual health outcomes and interventions? And we had to go really wide because we had to look at all all studies that hoped to have an impact on sexual health outcomes, so contraception, HIV prevention, HIV testing. We looked at the last 15 years, and we we looked at 13,000 abstracts, but then we found 33 studies that were comparing the usual way we do sex education to that, but including pleasure. Mm. And we found that there was a significant positive impact on sexual health for across those studies. So all of them, all of the pleasure arms had more impact. Um, And yeah, and we did a meta analysis, which means eight of them that looked at condom use, we pulled the results of those and found that it had a significant positive impact. So this was great and it was brilliant that the World Health Organization agreed to do this with us. And we got a huge um, media interest from that. There was like 50 media stories around Mm -hmm. the world that were all pretty positive you know and and all around the world like arab news indian news that's good wow the german press went big on it that was nice the bbc it was the top story on bbc health um, for a few days yeah so that was fantastic because there was that really credible research which is saying not only is it an important thing to think about but it's it's the way to make your programs more effective so there's no i'm hoping that it means people can't continue to avoid it um because if you're responsible for sexual health this is what you should be doing and it's not like it's a kind of complex new technology that needs a whole in- no, you know, I know, infrastructure I know. like a vaccine rollout I mean that is really complicated you know right. cold storage and all of that this is changing the conversations we're having and becoming more comfortable yeah yes and
0: thank you for that research i mean this is what we need this is what we need right i mean i'm thinking about so many paradigm shifts where people would be like oh but then younger people are going to start having sex and all like all the fear based of if we start talking about pleasure then it means this right this is going to happen but when you come and hit them with data on research in their own game. And you're like, well, but look at this. What, do, what, what are we going to do with that? You know what I mean? It changes the paradigm. I think we're seeing that also with psychedelics and the use of those for treatment in mental health. That's another area that I'm in where it's like, you know, so mm-hmm. much fear based about that. And then when you come with this research on how effective it is for treatment resistant depression, then people have to sit back and say, okay, well, we're going to ignore the data then and not listen. or. We're going to have to change a paradigm. And I think that's exactly what you're doing is putting out the research, the credible research to show that this paradigm needs to be shifted.
1: Oof. Yeah, And we went, we did the systematic review so thoroughly. Like yes. so there would be no question yes. about it. It was like every screw on that machine was polished. Oh. Heavily, like and, yes. Routine. Yes. and we had a brilliant co-author, Mirella, who's, you know, I think she's doing her PhD in how to do systematic reviews, Good. you know, so. And so she was phenomenal. And then we also had a co-author from the World Health Organization yeah. and then myself and somebody else from the Pleasure Project did it, Arushi. And, um, you know, it was pretty epic. I learned a lot um, in the process, um, but we didn't want there to be any... T- because of Because when it's a stigmatized subject, you have to go above yes. and beyond, right? We all know that, right? So then we had to kind of really get it to be absolutely spotless as it were so Mm. that's great but yeah it does seem to be really holding weight which is brilliant and another thing that we've been doing you know is using that evidence obviously for the pleasure principles but Mm -hmm. we're encouraging Mm -hmm. organizations to endorse the pleasure principles and take actions towards pleasure-based sexual health and you know and if they are responsible for sexual health outcomes that's what they should be doing with this new Effective way of doing sex education, and so it's great. We've got some really good front runners and some yeah. really inspiring organisations that have already endorsed, and they're they're on our website. But they're like some of the you know some really big global sexual health organisations. We're quite excited that recently the International Planned Parenthood Federation endorsed the Pleasure Principles. So that's the you know. Yes, the the biggest provider globally of sexual and reproductive health services they provide over 200 million unique services every year like all around the world and um it's been great and the the kind of concrete actions they're taking towards this they're implementing a um great campaign in their africa region by their africa regional office called treasure your pleasure which is brilliant and as been really impactful they've had um they've done a whole range of social media about all different aspects of pleasure in a way of getting more young people on the continent to engage you know bring themselves kind of up to date and they've had gosh nearly a million engagements they've got they've been doing it just for four months they've had eight million views and so it's a way of kind of bridging that gap again with the kind of content that you might be getting on social media but, also, with somebody who is using the evidence is providing services, they've worked with some really great young African influencers who have really brought this brilliant creativity to it. Ah, uh,
0: this is so profound. There's so much healing in this, so much healing that you and your team are bringing to the world I mean. I want to ask, like, how does it feel to be at the front of this, of changing the paradigm?
1: Well, it's it's interesting when the when it kind of changes, right? Yeah. So, I, you know, at the beginning, I was like the um, waving the flag at the conferences, and you know, feeling like the kind of loony activist yeah. that people yes. were like yes. dismissing. What's, oh, it's her again. What's yeah. she talking about? Oh, it's and the assumptions people make about you and why you're focused on this, and you know. what's she really up to you know all of that is especially also if you're female identifying then it's Mm -hmm. like oh you know what she wants kind of thing all of this nonsense that you get and then you know and and it's nice it's been really nice to share with other pleasure champions in terms of you know that their similar experiences and we have these brilliant 20 pleasure fellows who are like a kind of pleasure family to us and that kind of sharing I mean it's been brilliant for me also to move from that position of the kind of more lone advocate to making these connections and that's why i see it as really important for others as well but we we have a pleasure fellows scheme and we um had amazing response we just put a call out on our social media and we had um, we had 20 places only and we had like over 200 applications and what was brilliant is that we got over 60 percent from africa about 30 percent from south asia And that was really great because that's also often a preconceived idea that people have more often in the West Mm -hmm. that this is not a subject you can talk about, like in Africa or Asia, like we can Uh, talk about it in Europe, but I don't really think you talk about it in Europe, to be honest, or the US, but it's like a kind of projection, right? mm, mm. And so what's been brilliant is that we had such a wealth of applications. And then uh, these, um, the 20 Pleasure Fellows are phenomenal. They're doing this amazing work. They're, Pleasure activists. They're either working, Jaime's working with men who have sex with men in Chile to talk about pleasure and anal health. Jovian's mm, um, okay. working with sex workers in Uganda to talk about pleasure and sexual health. There's a great Anna's um, in the Philippines, and she's got a great podcast called Middle Me, which is about sexuality for women in midlife oh, and how good. you know that's something that's denied. So this it's all brilliant and I think so coming back to your question I think for me it's been at times um so exciting it's sort of overwhelming to Mm. move from you know pushing pushing at the door to actually then having people saying yeah we want this we want to be trained we want to endorse the principles but yeah very satisfying to Mm. sort of have this idea where you're thinking this really does need to change and I'm going to really like hook onto this like a dog with a bone that's a bit like what I'm like sometimes and I'm like Mm -hmm. no I know good I know this is right And this is just weird that this is not being talked about and then to have these large respected organizations start to you know get involved with the wave and take it forward and there'd be so much interest I think is fantastic yeah and I guess for me it's also Confirmed that we stuck to our mission and stuck to our values, even when we couldn't get any funding. I mean, we couldn't really get funding for like 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So we were doing it, you know, we got some, well, we got some small bits and pieces. Yeah. So we had to find other ways. And then a brilliant organization called The Case for Her is a feminist philanthropy organization. They kind of, stepped in with some of the first funding for the systematic review and sort of took the risk on us and I think but it confirmed to me that it's important to stick with your values and your mission and then the world will catch up with you eventually they will catch up with you
0: (laughs) yes I mean that sounds so incredibly validating right you were the person that was screaming that held the signs that was trying to say this is where we need to go and then to find that community that is with you in that and says yes obviously i mean There is such a validation in that to not be alone to not be that lone wolf and to find a community of people that can come together to do something like that systematic review because when you do something like that that, you can't do that by yourself i mean maybe it'd take a long time right there's so much Mm -hmm. research to go through you need your team you need your community and then to see that be held in that and to see the effects that it's having in different countries to bring about more pleasure i mean wow
1: i mean it's also you know getting who on board as the the credible world well literally that the world health organization but i think where i found strength was knowing that i was standing on the shoulders of giants as well Mm, i mean you know there's some you know audrey lord i mean i just hold the book all the time and read it you know um you know then when i saw adrian marie brown's book listen to that I i was like wow so you know you can find But then also, I suppose the most strength I got was when, for example, putting on those, you know, those meetings at the AIDS conferences Mm -hmm. and that how enthusiastic people were, like how packed the rooms were. Like the first one we did, we had to like, we were like, really sorry, people, but we have to shut the doors now because this is becoming a fire risk. Right. And people coming up to me afterwards and saying, oh, thank God, you know, like this is such a relief, you know, like and so that sense of I've also been thinking this and so for me the greatest strength comes from people like the pleasure fellows or people Mm. working in in the sexual health world in the public health world who have been forging ahead and you know and and shoulders of giants like some of the the work by gay men at Mm -hmm. the beginning of the AIDS pandemic by sex workers who also kind of spoke the truth to power yes Um, so that's where that's where I guess my strength has come from but the the kind of shift from that yeah that's the major shift from being Mm -hmm. you know saying something that people um, are finding difficult to digest or to one where they're much more receptive and actually now the conversation I have much more regularly is not that pushing on the door conversation making I'm not making the case as much it's like how to deliver this you know how are we going to incorporate this within our programs and you know I did a training last week for example with a one of our endorsing organizations, Avert, which is one of the largest providers of mm-hmm. online HIV prevention information. And that was that was our conversation. It was all like we we don't need to have that first conversation. Right. We're having the conversation about how we're going to make this work for us as an organization because we want mm. to be as effective as possible. So yes. I think for me that's the the biggest shift, shift and the and the range of different brilliant thought leaders and lived yeah. experiences which brings much more richness. Um, to how we move forward with
0: this this pleasure wave absolutely the pleasure wave i mean that is such a beautiful journey to stand on the shoulders of giants and to keep that momentum going like you said you know now we're not knocking at the door we're talking about how to implement it and that wave is going to be a tsunami and i am ready i am ready (laughs) for the tsunami (laughs) i'm feeling this desire to ask you and i know it's you know such a general question big question but also why is
1: pleasure important? Why is pleasure important? Gosh, in so many ways. So I think pleasure can be transformational. That's why it's important. Asking ourselves what gives us pleasure centres us in a way to think of, you know, what gives us consensual pleasure to our own self-worth, you know, our due it allows us to think about what we want to aim for in life, be more thoughtful about that. I mean, it's obviously important now because it leads to more sexual health. There's a very health importance of pleasure to health. But I think it's that and and in terms of allowing us to also question some of the norms that we've been led to believe that we're not worthy of it or that our pleasure is um dirty or something yeah so yeah so I think it's it's a kind of a way of hopefully cutting through some of those barriers to be able to think of ourselves as worthy I guess yes
0: absolutely yeah that sort of self-love like you said of I deserve pleasure I deserve pleasure and to sit in that Versus the maybe more like victim mindset of like the consent conversations, which are obviously important, but when it's focused on like sexual trauma, the negatives, all those pieces, like that is not necessarily an empowering conversation. And So like you're saying, shifting that to what do I find pleasurable? What do I want in my fantasies that brings so much autonomy to yourself the ability to dream and fantasize and imagine because you know that you deserve that pleasure that is a radical shift
1: yeah and I think yeah absolutely we can probably I think well not probably we can definitely pleasure allows us to be more imaginative and creative and yes. um you know we you know if you look at the wheel of consent and we have that in the pleasure principles thinking about that overlaying that with a pleasure lens Mm -hmm. and you know giving pleasure receiving pleasure knowing what we're gonna be able to ask for you know that that the the beauty in that consent conversation Mm -hmm. and being able to articulate it in a positive frame moving towards something that will be something that will be pleasurable for all the people involved is the Mm -hmm. way that a consent conversation should be, I think. Because that also allows you to know what you don't want in that frame. I mean, it sounds fairly obvious, but it's a sort of an obvious truth that isn't spoken about often
0: enough. Right, and it comes through at least in my experience with some of the kink partners that I've been playing with of like being able to state what I want or what I don't want even, you know, like that's too much for me and having the response back from a partner of thank you. That's a radical shift of, like, instead of when you say, I need a pause or a break, it, like you said, throwing off the music of the situation and being this thing versus, like, thank you for telling me what you need so that we can connect closer. Or what you don't want so that we can connect closer and bring more pleasure. I mean, ooh, this is a radical
1: wave. I'm ready for it. it should be the way all of those sexual conversations happen. It should be you know, thank you for expressing that yes. and I hear you and yes. I understand you better now. That's an intimacy, the intimacy yes. of that consent, yeah. Yes, it's
0: a beautiful thing. Mm. Yeah. I have one more closing question, <laughs> unless anything is really sitting on your tongue that you just need to get off. Um,
1: I mean, I guess just join the pleasure wave, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want people yeah. to, yes. you know... See the global mapping of pleasure, see all the brilliant people that are pleasure experts now. You know, we're starting to get like a, I love it. It's like a pleasure Rolodex. Oh yeah, this person knows about this, this person knows about this. Endorse the pleasure principles and join the pleasure wave. We are literally the funnest people (laughs) on the planet. (laughs) I love working with pleasure. Pleasure propagandists. I call myself a pleasure propagandist, but we're the funnest people. So connect with us. Talk to us if you want to endorse the pleasure principles. We've got lots of tools that you can use. Mm-hmm. We're like, you know, spreading the pleasure. So, you know, if, you, if we have a training toolkit, so there's, there's lots that we can help you.
0: With. Great, great. Yes, join the pleasure wave. Yes. Well, then there's one last question I ask everyone on the podcast. Yes. What is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal?
1: That it's normal to honor your pleasure yes Hmm. say more but you know it's normal to think about what you want in your relationships it's normal to explore that it's normal to play with yourself until you know what feels good um, it's normal to talk about it it's sexy it's intimate it's not stepping away from a relationship, it's a stepping into a relationship and an interaction. It's normal to, for sometimes it might feel awkward. It's normal. Sometimes it might jar, it's awkward. We're all on a journey. We're having to unlearn a silence. We're having to unlearn a silence that has been imposed upon us. And we're in a particular moment in history, which is quite a dark moment, quite a sex negative moment. But other moments in history haven't been like that. There's been much more open conversations of pleasure. And that's normal. We're on a down dip.
0: Mm -hmm. We need to get
1: up on the pleasure wave to get on the up dip. Yeah. So we can celebrate all the heritages of pleasure out there. Read, you know, there's, there's wonderful historical books that are full of the normality of pleasure and poetry. And so, yeah.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And I want to thank you so much for being a leader in that space and for supporting the wave and to come on the podcast and talk about this and share this message with the world.
1: It's very, very powerful. Well, and also thanks to all the other pleasure propagandists and leaders out there. I get a huge yes. amount of joy from the building community. Yeah. A big buzz
0: yes we're in this together <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast and bringing all of your wisdom thank you well thank you
1: for having me
0: if you enjoyed today's episode then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast and if you're a part of the anarchist community then follow us on instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modern podcast at gmail.com otherwise i'll see you next week